The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? The Chinese government today puts forward an idea of what it is to be Chinese, of what contributes to that Chinese identity, which is often shared by a lot of Chinese people themselves. Some of the key tenets of this identity are 5,000 years of history, for example, dating all the way back to the Yellow Emperor. There's also this notion of territorial sovereignty, this territorial wholeness, which includes places like Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and even the South China Sea. And there's also a definition of what peoples live in China, 56 ethnic groups of which the Han are the vast majority. But amongst these and other tenets of national identity, how much of them actually have a solid historical basis as opposed to being constructed in some way by people in recent history? That's a question I'll be asking today, together with the journalist Bill Hayton, who has written the book The Invention of China, looking at all of these questions. He pins a lot of what we know as modern Chinese identity down to a group of reformers that were active at the end of the Qing dynasty. And without giving you even more spoilers, Bill, welcome to the podcast. To start with, can you set out your stool? You write that you are not a historian, but you're, you're collating and making accessible the academic debates that have been happening in recent history, this revisionism of Chinese history that looks at the constructed nature of Chinese identity. The book is a beginner's guide to the emergence of Chinese nationalism, but it's not just a, a book about things which happened 100 years ago. Every chapter begins with a modern-day example of how these debates, which emerged in the late 19th and then carried on into the early 20th century, how they affect China and its relations with the world today. And I try to sort of make uh, a lot of things which maybe you might study in a university degree sort of accessible to a general audience. And what is your argument about, because you, you call it in the invention of China, which is quite a radical cool thing to say. Yeah, I mean, it sounds slightly provocative. <laughs> well, it's deliberately provocative. I mean, an academic might call it the construction of China. It's the way that people took certain ideas and then they remolded them and they sort of used them in a political way to recreate an idea of China. And so it's not to say, of course, that there were, you know, of course, there were Chinese people and there was a Chinese state. But the way that that was reimagined uh, around the turn of the 19th, 20th century really changed our perception of China and I think and, and, and let's say the Chinese people's perception mm. of China as well and what I wanted to show in the book was that this was very much a hybrid process that the modern China that we see today was created constructed I use the word invented by people who were in very close dialogue with Europeans and, and, mm. and Westerners generally either through the things they were reading or actually physically that they were in exile or um, they were traveling around the, the world uh, and encountering new ideas and, um, uh, and, and modernizing principles. Well, can you set the scene there, actually? Because so much of your book is about the history of that 
I would say half a century maybe of those 19th, 20th century thinkers that you're talking about. Why was there this impetus to form this modern notion of China and its identity at that time? Well, I think as you get towards the end of the 19th century, there is a sense of crisis at the end of the of, I mean, the, the, the Qing Empire, which had ruled from 1644. And of course, you've had the two opium wars, 1840 and 1860. But then actually, there was a sort of 30-year period where there was this attempt to modernize without changing, uh, 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 without changing too much of the, the politics. And there was a sense that the European powers, Britain and France, wanted to help the Qing Empire to modernize. You know, they provided, you know, um, shipyards and all this kind of sort of, you know, industrial, let's call it sort of exchange. And there wasn't the idea of the self-strengthening uh, movement that they wanted, you know, that there was an internal modernization campaign that wanted to understand how the West had become strong, to take those ideas about technology and science and uh, modernize China or modernize the Qing uh, Empire. But then that way of doing things sort of runs out of road particularly and, and the crisis is 1894 1895 when you have the sino-japanese war and japan which you know uh, the Qing empire had seen as this little upstart you know country on the other side of the sea beats the Qing empire comprehensively and there's just a, a total sense of crisis and a lot of the sense of crisis is informed by european ideas about social darwinism and i mean it's a I, mean, I think maybe an older generation would be much more familiar with ideas of social Darwinism, but it was, you know, it was, it was very strong, the idea that, you know, that the, the races were competing with one another for survival in this Darwinistic sense, and that the strong races would survive and the weak would fail. And it looked like the, the whites were going to win and the yellows were going to be confined to extinction. And this, this is the language that's being used at the time. So what can, and I'm using the, the words of the time, what can the yellow race do in order to survive? And so a real sense of crisis. And then three years from 1895 to 1898, an intense burst of reform and then the empress comes in and says, you know, that's enough of that. And the reformers are exiled off to Japan. And it looks like there's going to be a kind of an end to this reform process. But by sending all of these reformers off to Japan or into exile, actually they encounter more and more of these ideas. And so for the, the, the 1900s, all of these Chinese reformers, are a lot of them are in, are in Japan, but some are in Southeast Asia, some are in Europe, some are in North America. And they're just, you know, absorbing all of these ideas and arguing one another about what kind of country China should be in the future. And then when the revolution comes in 1911, 1912, all these ideas sweep back into the country. And that's when, you know, the real change takes place. But it's this, it's the fact that all these people were outside of the country, I think, looking back at their mm -hmm. homeland through foreign eyes in some ways that created this sense of China and where it had to go in the future. That's a fantastic overview <laughs> of that period of time. Very clear. Thank you so much. So I guess what we can see is that, you know, maybe chronologically divided as well, there were reformers, people who wanted a constitutional monarchy or constitutional imperial dynasty, who, as you say, got exiled when the empress said no to that. And then there were people who were more radical, revolutionaries, republicans, who wanted no Qing empire, no empire at all. And they, they got their way in the republic in 1911. Well, for a little bit, at least. Yes, yeah, for the next 40, 50 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And can we talk a little bit about the main characters um, in this period? And, and there are a lot of characters and a lot of Chinese names, but one person who always stands out is Liang Qichao. So can you talk about him a bit? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm going to say his name slowly for the uh, so Liang Qichao, spelled with a Q. I mean, it's hard to overestimate the influence that he had. Uh, he was a journalist, but I mean, he was writing tens of thousands of words every week. And he created newspapers. He was hugely influential. And more than that, he was absorbing uh, foreign concepts and finding ways to explain them to his, his Chinese readers. Sometimes that was done directly. He would sort of you know, uh, talk with maybe Europeans, but a lot of it was actually coming through Japanese. And so you have European, say, German ideas about the importance of a national language are being taken into Japan and obviously written in Japanese. Uh, he can read the, the, the characters um, and uh, he is finding ways to represent those, those ideas to a Chinese audience. And he's massively influential uh, throughout the sort of 1890s. The start of the 1900s, He's still very important, but um, after the emperor dies, and he's been somebody who wants to sort of, you know, uh, free the emperor from the clutches of his sort of uh, his evil aunt, the, the the empress, he becomes less relevant. But having said that, he does actually when after the revolution he is invited back and he becomes uh, a member of the government, and he, he continues to have an important role afterwards. Well, in that later period, one other person comes to the fore much more, which is Sun Yat-sen, who people in the West will have heard of. Can you talk about his role in all of this? Because well, he, he was a revolutionary. He yeah, was yeah. So he sits on the other side of the political spectrum. Although in the book, I actually talk about how Sun Yat-sen and Yang Jiechi do have quite a lot in common on, on certain But they were things. in exile in Japan. They were in exile in Japan. Um, and they, particularly on the question of how big China should be, they, they, they definitely wanted a, you know, a maximal China on that, and which made them different from, from some of the other people who were much more, some of them were saying, let's get rid of the outer territories and let's concentrate on, 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 on core China. But Sun Yat-sen, I mean, he was born in southern China, but he is educated in Hawaii, educated by Anglican missionaries in Hawaii. He then goes to Hong Kong for his medical education. And he's a, you know, he's a troublemaker. He's an agitator almost from, you know, from his teenage years. And he, he wants a complete break. I mean, and, and for him, the experience of hearing about the Sino-Japanese War in 1895 just makes him want to... Was get, he in Hawaii at that He was point? in Hawaii at that time. And he just wants to break completely and say, we have to get rid of the, the empire and we have to have a revolution and, uh, and become a republican democracy. Now, one thing that doesn't really get talked about very much these days is the fact that the Qing Empire, that you know, was was a Manchu Empire. That the the Manchu, these people from from Inner Asia, from what's now Northeast China, they had invaded in 1644 and taken over the old Ming state. So there was always a sort of ethnic dimension to the revolutionary work, which was the sense that these people, and they were sometimes referred to as Tartars, these inner Asians that had come in, they were sort of foreigners, and they were ruling China. And so the Chinese revolution is a way of turning the Qing Empire inside out so that the rather than it being a Manchu Empire with a Chinese part and a Manchu part, a Tibetan, Xinjiang, a Uyghur, and Mongolian part, it will become a Chinese empire. And then the debate is, well, should that just be the old Ming China or should it be you know, the whole of the Qing Empire, including Tibet and Xinjiang and, and the other parts as well? And that was something that um, Liang Qichao and Sun Yat-sen agreed, that it should be a, a 
the whole empire, but then there were others who wanted a sort of more pure Chinese state. And that was a, a real live debate throughout the 1900s. Well, terminology is such a tricky part of all of this, isn't it? Because you say China proper and, and the base, the core of China, but Liang Qichang and Sun Yat-sen would have disputed that was core China. They would have said, you know, all of these outer regions were also China. So I guess one thing to underpin what is China and what is not is the people. And again, we're going to get into mm-hmm, tricky territory mm-hmm. here, but let's talk about the, the debate about the Han Chinese versus other ethnicities, because there was a period of time when people thought there were five ethnicities in China. But I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So, so t- <coughs> well, tell us about that. I mean, all tell of this is, I mean, the problem with all of this, of course, is that we're using European words to describe this. So words like, you know, ethnic group and nation and, uh, and state and things. These are all European attempts to try to understand, you know, what made a country, what made a nation. Could you have groups that spoke the same language on different sides of a state border? And all of these debates, which, you know, I mean, they caused a century of conflict in Europe um, and they were exported to China in the middle of that century, you know, kind of around sort of 1890s into the 1900s. And you've got the problem of translation. How do you, how does someone like Liang Chichao translate a word like ethnic group or nation into Chinese? And you have this word, this word Minzu, which comes into Chinese. And even today, we don't know what it means, literally, because, you know, officially China has 56 Minzu, you know, 56 ethnic groups of which the Han is one. But it also has a single Zhonghua Minzu, a single Chinese nation. So Minzu means group, and it also can mean the whole nation. And and these debates were very live back in that period as well. Was there just not much categorization within China natively before then? Well, I mean, yes, there was. Uh, there were certain categorizations, and particularly because the, the, the Qing, the Manchu had come in from the outside, they had a sense of themselves needing to be kept different from mm. the conquered population. And so, you know, right up until the revolution, well, maybe in the 1900s, you had... Uh, segregated parts of the cities. You had Manchu parts of the cities and you had uh, Chinese parts of the cities. Even in, in Beijing, you can see the inner walls and you know where the outer walls were now and you know the, the different parts of the city. And the same was true in other places as well. And there were bans on intermarriage between Manchu and, and Chinese. But they weren't written as Manchu and Chinese. They were written as military and civilian. But these were the sort of, that, that was the categorization that was used. The word Han, I mean, it's, it's, I, I looked into this a bit and I, I think I've come to an explanation. Um, <laughs> it seems to be a word that inner Asian people use to describe the Chinese rather than the word that the Chinese use to describe themselves. I think that the, the common way, if you were living in, say, Shanghai or Nanjing, you know, you would have talked of yourself as being Hua, as being mm. civilized, as being it's like a sort of cultural community. You wouldn't have used the word Han. But the people in inner Asia, they remembered the Han dynasty and they kind of kept on referring to, to the people over the hills over there as the Han, even though, of course, the Han had been replaced by subsequent dynasties. And so when they arrive, when, you know, when they invade, they, they're still referring to the local people as the Han to some extent. And, but this name is not really adopted by the people who were being called Han really until the very end of the 19th century. And, and then it's all bound up with the debates about whether they're going to be a, a reform of the empire or a revolution to overthrow it, which is also bound up with ideas of whether there is a yellow race. And so if there's a yellow race, then the Chinese and the Manchu and the Japanese and everybody are all part of the same yellow race. 
But then the revolutionaries come along and they say, no, no, the Manchu are the problem. We've got to get rid of the Manchu. They're the reason that we're so backwards. <laughs> and so now we need a kind of logic that we get rid of the Manchu. And so they look at and they find this word Han. And they basically say, okay, we're part of the same big race. But if you, if you look at the way our families trace back and you can trace lineages and family names, then actually we're part of a different you know, sort of race slash lineage. And that makes us different from the Manchu. And these people are Han. And then you build up the connections to the Yellow Emperor from 5,000 years before. You know, we're all children of the Yellow Emperor. And so really the, the, the idea of there being a Han race is something which emerges from the work of a guy called Jang Bin Lin. And he publishes a book in 1900 um, and really advocates for the Han race as being distinct from the yellow race, which the reformists had believed in up until that point. What was incredible was the kind of genocidal acts that you describe in your book as well, of the extreme of this Han supremacism, really, which you kind of see still quite a lot, as you point out, in modern China, that you think the Han should be leading that. And let's move on to modern China in just a bit. But yeah, I, I didn't realize that people took it into their own hands to really get rid of the Manchus. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, there's some really nasty, you know, killings that took place in some cities in 1911, 1912, where people were identified by the clothes they wore or the perceived flatness of their foreheads or something like that, you know, that these are Manchu and they should be got rid of. And there was a very strong, you know, ethnic, you know, quasi-genocidal element to it. And it looked as if the country, the 1911-1912 transition, could have descended into a really, you know, vicious bloodletting across the whole country. But actually, there was a, a political imperative, I think, to st- I mean, everybody, you know, who wanted it to succeed. And they this, I think, is where you had this accommodation around about 1912, that suddenly those people who might have been arguing for a pure hand state realized what the consequences might be. And then you, they were forced into a compromise with elements of the old Qing Empire. And so that's when you see this flag, which is forgotten about by most people now, the, the, the flag of the five races. Mm. And, and then you have the Republic of the Five Races. So the five races become the Han, the Manchu, the Mongol, the Tibetans, and the Uyghurs. And you have the five-striped flag. And um, that was the first flag of the and Republic. And that was the first flag of the Republic and remained the flag until 1928. And it was a way of bridging these really difficult gaps between what the, you know who was in the nation and it was a way of saying okay we allow a sort of sense of difference to continue because we you know we're forced you know by reality to recognize that not everybody feels chinese in the same way as sun yat sen feels chinese but of course at this point i mean the other parts of uh, of the Qing Empire breaking away. I mean, Tibet, in effect, becomes independent. Outer Mongolia breaks away. The Xinjiang area, incredibly complicated, but sort of breaks into competing fiefs. And, uh, you know, it, it was a way of holding that together, at least on paper. Because what they wanted, even if they were Han uh, supremacists, what they wanted was the territory that the Qing Empire took down, brought with it, expanded from the Ming dynasty. Because even though they were somehow relating to this Ming founding emperor, Zhu Yuanzhang, they wanted what the Qing got in terms of territory, and that's Xinjiang, that's Tibet, that's Mongolia. Yeah, and I think that was driven by questions of resources and defence and concern about Russia coming in and, yeah. and in Britain through India and Afghanistan from the, from the south and, and the west. So, yeah, it was a kind of thing, a sense of kind of we need a big territory to, be defend, uh, to defend ourselves against these foreigners. And we need to demarcate that, which you say is a Western concept, demarcate your borders in that way. Is that Westphalian or...? Well, I, th- I guess that's, that's the word we use, the idea that you actually draw a line. I mean, a lot of 
thinking about territory up until that point. You know, the border was, I mean, there's um, the people who, you know, uh, went and explored these areas and they, and they defined, they, they described the border as sort of being a zone. You would sort of, you know, you'd have a sort of a, let's call it a Chinese outpost and then you'd travel for 50 miles and then you might find a Russian outpost or something. But there was no sense that there was a kind of clear line in, in many places. Or you had these groups who were sort of managed as kind of buffers, you know, you know, between rival empires, and they would. You know, I mean, they were well, the tribute states, are they? Or well, I mean, you you have an idea. Tribute states is one way of looking, at it, but sometimes you have kind of just groups who you know, you know acknowledge a leader, and then their leader is recognised, you know, mm. or, you know, pays tribute to the emperor, but they don't necessarily feel that they belong and there's a sort of you know vague sense that they might be able to kind of move from one side to the other and this is particularly true in in say the mountains between china and what's now vietnam you know there was a kind of sense that the you know at the, as long as the lowland was okay you know that was fine but kind of everything that happened above 200 meters you know that was you know that was you know that was where the malaria was and and that was where the smuggling was and you know somewhere up in those mountains there was a you know there was a boundary and a change but we didn't have a an absolutely right. you know an a fixed definition of it until the imperial powers France and Britain in particular come along and start saying okay you know that I want this point. river yeah. and this yeah. mountain peak and, and that kind of you know. so demarcating was to protect yourself against that in, in, in essence yeah I mean initially that was forced upon the Qing empire by the foreigners and then it kind of becomes internalized Going back to the history of the territory, uh, you know, you've got these foreign conquerors, you've got the Manchus, you've got the Mongols, who are the Yuan dynasty. But as you point out very rightly, the official narrative is this 5,000 years of history, almost this primordial state that came into being after the first emperor, Qing Shi Huang, united it. And then, you know, it might have been taken over wholesale by other ethnicities, but China, China was there. Mm. But really, what if you look at the history of it, it's more like the Italian states, isn't it? You have these warring states, the city states. And then the idea of Italy comes into being after unification. And for a long time of his history, it's actually just a lot of different countries fighting each other. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's really interesting how we frame the past in this sense. I mean, and, and we look at China in some ways, I think as we look at ancient Egypt, we think of the idea of a dynasty and, their, and continuity. Mm. And then we see periods when there isn't unity as somehow being an aberration and then there's a return to the natural way of of being unified and of course if you're a a state during the period of unity then you emphasize that you this is the rightful way of being and you kind of and you look back and you say well you know all of these unified emperors oh yeah we'll just forget about that you know that period then over those 400 years when we weren't unified um that was an aberration and so and obviously at the time you know in, through the republic and the people's republic you know where they want you know made a claim to being a big unified state it's very much in their interest to emphasize this, you know, this continuity. And I think actually it was, I mean, this is where I get into the idea of, you know, the hybrid construction of what China is. I think that there was a view of what China was, which existed in Europe. Mm. Um, and it, which was, you know, a bit like the view of ancient Egypt, this sort of continuous civilization and this dynastic history. And that that was actually transplanted into uh, sort of Chinese intellectual thinking around the sort of 19th, 20th century change. I mean, obviously, it, it's sort of there already. I mean, there's, you know, for, you know, for some, you know, for, for thinkers, you know, for people who are sort of following, let's, let's call it Confucian ways of thinking. But I think it's given an extra boost by the contact with the Europeans. Um, and so you have this new construction of China where, you know, where this history is, is solidified. 
a lot of what you know the dynasties that we you know that's you know for about half of the last two thousand years, China in inverted commas has been ruled by people who came from outside China. You know they were Mongols or they were Manchu or you know the Tang were Shanbei people from Inner Asia, and then you have you know periods of division. So you have to work quite hard to kind of show a continuous pure Chinese you know kind of lowland. China, Ming China, if you like, you know, civilization for those two thousand years. But that's what nationalism does. You know, it cherry picks the past and it says we'll have this bit and this bit and this bit. But how much did culture and language link this idea of China for people in there? Because you've got these people who come in and are foreigners essentially to the dynasties, but they. Do adopt Confucianism rather than the step life that they had before. They adopt a Chinese script, which it does unify across a certain geography. Even if, as you point out, the dialects are different, and essentially you can't understand how how things are spoken. You can read the same script, and that has gone to Japan as well. So, is it more of a soft idea of China? This this, this cultural link, this Confucianism, this religious link,、uh, and this linguistic unity? Yeah, I think we, you have to sort of. Pull out a lot of these things and make and, and understand what you know how they were used. So, I mean, being Chinese, if you like, was also was was partly about being urban. It was about being literate. It was about acknowledging the emperor. But did it actually have an ethnic component? It's a bit. It, it, I'm not so sure that it did. Linguistically, as you say, there was a script. But I mean, if you know. If you speak Cantonese and you go to Shanghai or Beijing, you'll wonder whether is this is this the same language or and certainly in European context, Spanish, Italian, Romanian, you know, we would divide those into different languages, and yet you. But would, the words are spelled differently. I mean, the script, I yeah, think, well, I, I think mean, is important. Imagine, imagine if you could somehow write European languages with emojis. Well, exactly, but exactly, but it, it, you know, I mean, I guess just to clarify for for listeners, we've got the dialects with the spoken language, which sounds different and、mm-hmm. you know incomprehensible to parts of China. So I, as a Mandarin speaker, can't understand Cantonese when I hear it. But when the Cantonese people write traditional Chinese, which is the script before this period of nation building. I can read that, and that is the exact same script as used by different. And yeah, that is,、mm. yeah, that's no small. It's、thing. no small thing, but of course, I could confuse that by saying, "Well, it goes into Japan and it goes into Vietnam." Yeah, and Japan maybe should be part of China. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Vietnam, I'm sure there are some people war, in China but, who yeah, say that. Yeah, yeah. But then, and this sort of civilizing power, if you like, has allowed Chinese culture to expand and to spread and to incorporate new people. I mean, so you know, the people that used the characters and spoke in a particular way, you know, two thousand years ago, that. Covered a much smaller area than,、sure. than, than does today, and you know the people you know in the southern part of China and what's now northern Vietnam were referred to as being Yue, you know, kind of you know outsiders in in effect, and yet gradually they've been incorporated into the the state, and the and the separate those separate histories have been have been lost, you know, they've been told they're all. All part of China, so yeah, and, and, and there are other things, of course. You know, food is different in different places, and、um, you know, manners of dress and things. But yet, there is a you know, as, there is a, a sense of belonging, and so it's because these these reformers and these revolutionaries, they weren't. I mean, I know you are provocatively using the word inventing, but they weren't inventing out of nothing. Yes, there no, was a basis、mm-hmm. that was quite instinctive to a lot of people,、mm-hmm. which is why they had such uptake, even in the exile community. Well, maybe the exile community helped them with that,、mm-hmm. but there was something that they're basing it on. And you might not be able to say whether what something is or define it around the edges,、uh, and the edges might be、mm-hmm. arbitrary. But the core of it, you know, there is something that yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think this takes me back to the idea of being in exile. That actually. 
was leaving the country and looking back mm. that made a lot of these reformers and revolutionaries think, oh, yes, there is something that makes us different from everybody yes, else yeah. and, that, and that we can build an identity around that. And so, but of course, these people were from specific parts of China. They were, a lot of them were, they were from the, the, the ports where they'd had contact with foreigners. So they were sort of, you know, they're from I don't know, Guangdong or they were from Shanghai region or they were from the capital. And so they were sort of trying to spread a new idea of what it meant to be Chinese to the rest of the country which up until that point wasn't particularly bothered you know, about it. I mean, they, you know, you, you find all these sort of nationalists complaining, you know, why are the Chinese so backward? You know, is there, a, a quote, is there a conceptual error lodged in every Chinese person's brain that they can't see this? You know, they can't they, defend they, the country. They, they can't, well, they can't defend them, but they don't think of themselves as being Chinese in the same way that these modernizers thought of themselves. And it was yeah. a considerable effort to, to transmit these ideas to, to, the, to the rest of the population. It is an interesting thought because in, in China, in today's discourse, um, being a traitor or Meguoze or someone like that uh, or someone who helped the Japanese is quite a bad thing to be historically and you know you will get people being accused of being collaborators today as well but perhaps these people who were helping the opium trade in the south just didn't really consider themselves to be linked to the the communities and the, and the nations. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a sense, I think, that they were, you know, kind of, you know, exactly part of that nation, that they were just doing what they'd always done, you know, <laughs> surviving, you know, kind of in, in any way they could. And, and so, yeah, a lot of people are being retrospectively classified as goodies and baddies. I also think it's interesting that so much of this happened in Japan, you know, of all countries. Mm, I mean, obviously, mm. it's geographically very close and militarily and civilizationally very strong at that point. But the idea of modern China coming out of Japan is deeply ironic to me. (laughs) (laughs) And possibly upsets a few people, I think. But actually, I mean, it it wasn't, it was more than China, actually. This period, you know, the 1900s, a woman called Rebecca Carl has written about this. You had all kinds of people sort of sloshing around in Japan at the time. You had Vietnamese nationalists, you had Philippine nationalists, you had Hawaiian nationalists and Chinese nationalists. And they were all in this sort of, you know, this sort of fervent arena. And it's where a lot of the, you know, the, you know, Japan is thinking of itself as, as a regional power. This will lead into the ideas of greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere, which animates the sort of you know, the Second World War and the sort of Japanese imperialism. At the other end, it's thinking of a sort of pan-Asian solidarity where all these sort of different groups can fight off the you know the, the European colonialists and, sort of, and and be free. And so, you know, you know, the port of Yokohama, you know, had all of these people kind of talking to each other. So it was a, it was a very stimulating time for a lot of people. That's amazing. And you know, relatedly, the Western imperial powers did help with a lot of this stuff. I mean, reading your book, it was interesting how much thinking and writing was able to be done in the areas that the imperial powers had carved out within China because they were areas of relative protection or freedom of speech from the Qing dynasty. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you couldn't have published these newspapers in places, you know, where the Qing, you know, censors could have stopped you. So, the, you know, Shanghai and Hong Kong become these, you know, centres of publishing and exchange. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's no coincidence, you know, for me that the Communist Party in 1921 is founded in Shanghai. They were able to exploit some of the loopholes in the law to have a meeting. It was a place where there was international connection and books were coming in from, from the outside. 
one of the things that set me on the route to writing this book was I visited the Communist Party Museum at the old site of Peking University mm. in Beijing. And the first picture you see is of a Welsh Baptist missionary called Timothy Richard, who is the first person to publish the names Karl Marx you know, and, and uh, Friedrich Engels in Chinese. Wow. And he does so in a missionary magazine in, in Chinese, not because he's a Marxist and he wants everyone to become a you know, communist, but he's just talking about all the ideas that are moving around in, in, in Europe at the time and he wants to enlighten you know people through his his missionary work which is more than just come and believe in a christian god it's about the benefits as he sees them of, of european civilization well i'm about to say something that might be unpopular with some listeners now because i think growing up in china you always see the century of humiliation as a negative thing it's it's unredeemably bad what happened to China. But actually taking a step back and looking at it in the context of these intellectual discussions happening, it allowed for a moment of crisis, which spurred, I think, clever people away from the Confucian old style of education into new modern ideas. They then tried to save their country. And there was a lot of debate going on, as we've talked about, you know, what it means to be Chinese, what it means to be Han, what China itself means. And that's a very exciting period. And I think all countries maybe need that moment and Japan had it with the Meiji Restoration. So, you know, in some ways it kind of kicked people into action. Yeah, I mean, I think there was there was a crisis going on. I mean, it wasn't as if everything was perfect in 1839 and then suddenly everything became bad. I mean, you know, there were enough problems in the, you know, in the, in the Qing Empire at that point. You know, there was, you know, famine in places and, and there were uprisings. Then, I mean, the you know, 1840 and 1860 war, no doubt the Europeans come along and, you know, kill people and impose drastic conditions uh, on the Qing Empire. But, you know, for most people, life carries on as normal. Uh, then you have these sort of 30-odd years of sort of the self-strengthening and the sort of cooperation. And then there's the, 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 the crisis. So people forget that there were these exchanges and these you know, periods of cooperation. And, and, the, and the phrase century of humiliation only really appears sort of, you know, you know, early 20th century as a formulation to discredit the Republic and everything that's come, come before. And, and of course, the, the, <laughs> the leading beneficiary of this period, you know, in, in China was the Communist Party, because if it hadn't been for the missionaries and their education work and their, uh, and, the, and it hadn't been for the treaty ports and the arrival of new ideas, and if it hadn't been for industrialization and the creation of a sort of working class and all the rest of it, then you wouldn't have had a communist party. Mm, yeah, deeply ironic. And I want to move on to the Communist Party of today in a little bit. But first, maybe some context, because I think that's important to people who are not social scientists, which is probably a lot of listeners. <laughs> but the construction of a national identity is not unusual. And Certainly, I would, wouldn't have thought any national identity was not constructed by, to some extent, um, in terms of arbitrariness or geopolitical interest. So I guess maybe just um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, you write in your book that other countries have this as well. And you mentioned Britain. What, what is the, like the UK equivalent of constructing a national identity that because we're not <laughs> saying we're that China, right now, we're, not, <laughs> we're not saying that China is the only. No, absolutely. Absolutely not. And I mean, I think, yes, this period, late 19th, early 20th century, this was happening all around the world. And, and it was, without getting too social science, I mean, the industrialization, modernization, urbanization, uh, you know, changes in old social relations, these were causing crises everywhere. I mean, in Britain, I mean, the, the idea of Britain is a, you know, is a, is a construction. I mean, a, a good sort of quiz question is to ask anybody in Britain, when did 
our country get its name, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? Well, only in 1921, you know, when, when you know, Southern Ireland you know, becomes the Republic. And so, you know, we've had to construct our own identity of what it means to be British. I mean, who, which nation lives in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? The problems in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland <laughs> show that we haven't answered these questions ourselves and the question of how we relate to, you know, to the rest of Europe. I mean, it used to be, we, I think that there was a sort of, we had a view of it, we were British and that was the end of the discussion. Mm. But obviously Brexit has, has, has reanimated all of those conversations now. And yes, I mean, you've seen the same thing in, in France and as you say, Italy, you know, that, that built, I mean, there's, you know, there were sort of countries like France and Italy that sort of their nationalism was forging a single state out of lots of small parts. And then I guess you had a, a different, you know, where, where you had an empire like, say, the Ottoman Empire or the Qing Empire, you had a nationalism there and they went in different directions. The Ottoman Empire fragmented and the Arab world became independent and, and the Ottoman Empire retreated to its Turkish core. Whereas in the case of the Qing Empire, uh, it didn't retreat to its Chinese core. It, it remained, you know, it, it's still full territory, but it had to change its, its composition within that territory. And the People's Republic of China is still trying to keep together those different territories. And I guess they saw the experience of the Soviet Union and they didn't want these satellite mm-hmm. states to break off. So let's talk about what's happening now then, because I think one difference between the construction of China and the construction of Britain, for example, is that the construction of Britain can have this freedom of speech and have this debate that's still going on. Whereas increasingly in China, in modern China, you can't do that. The party controls the Qing narrative ever closer. It controls this narrative about the century of humiliation, about the territorial claims, because, you know, it's obviously important to its own power. Yeah, actually, understanding and controlling the past is really important if you want to tell people that this, the shape of the country is natural and, and the way it's run is natural. I mean, it, there have been shifts in time. I mean, there have been periods when the government, the state, the party wanted to sort of smelt everybody into a single unit to make everybody the same. And then there was a period, say, sort of the 80s and 90s, when there was a tolerance for difference, shall we say. And then, you know, under Xi, there's clearly an attempt to kind of, you know, to go back to the smelting mold. Um, and I, in the book, I, I trace... You know, this is not a new thing. I mean, these two ways of looking at difference, you know, were there from the beginning. Mm. Uh, Someone like Sun Yat-sen was definitely a smelter. He wanted to kind of, you know, he looked at the the United States and he saw not so much the, the treatment of, say, black and white, but all the different Europeans that had migrated to the US, you know, Italians and Brits and Germans, you know, they'd all been smelted to make them into Americans. And he, he really liked that idea. And Liang Tichao also loved, loved, loved that idea, that they had a single strong nation. And yet, you know, you know, Xi Jinping's father, he saw the Cultural Revolution's effects in Tibet and he, he saw that was a bad thing. And so he led a movement to have much greater autonomy and allow Tibetans to run their own affairs. And now, you know, Xi Jinping himself, he's definitely a smelter. You know, he's definitely about making everybody feel Chinese in, in every way yeah, possible. Yeah, but smelting with hand dominance. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's not like, I mean, you it's know. not like free. Maybe, you know, <laughs> I mean, everybody, everybody, you know, in Shanghai likes Uyghur food, but, you know, that doesn't mean they're all going to kind of adopt a bit of Uyghur culture and sort of even everything out kind of you know you know across the country no there's definitely a an idea of what is higher you know civilization and, and what needs to be got rid of which Sun Yat-sen's and his his colleagues also had yeah, because of the social back. Darwinism yeah, that you yeah were absolutely about. yeah yeah I mean and clearly a sort of sense you know that urban literate society is at the one end and then you know kind of herding sheep is at the bottom end. <laughs> do you think that the party is 
creating a rod to beat its own back with because through its territorial claims, for example, in the South China Sea, it's fanning public opinion by laying claim to these places that, as you point out, the claims are relatively new, but then creating metrics by which Chinese public opinion can measure the strength of its government. And, you know, is that that actually making things worse for the party? I, I, I think, I mean, certainly in the case of the South China Sea, I think that the claims make China's job more difficult, makes their relations with Southeast Asia so much harder. And if it wasn't for that, Southeast Asia would have sort of, um, you know, kind of moved into a sort of Chinese orbit, you know, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it would have been it would have been sort of, you know, game over. I can understand that the when you, we talked about the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, that you know, if you're sitting in Beijing and you're looking at the rise of senses of difference around the edges, you could be worried about that. And what I, I mean, I think what we're seeing in Tibet and Xinjiang is something that hasn't really ever been attempted before. Is this mm. kind of enormous scale of trying to remould people's thinking about the state. And I used to sort of think that whenever you tried to squash a nationalist movement, it would always get stronger. That was kind of one of the dynamics of nationalism. But the way it's been done, you know, the amount of resources that have been thrown on it, I kind of feel that, you know, yeah. that they, they might, they're probably going to be successful. And, and I mean, who knows? I mean, it may well be that, you know, the, the, the trouble is bubbling under the surface and it's, it's, going, it's going to burst out. And finally, Bill, you've got a paperback version of this book coming out soon. I hope so, in the new um, year, yes. Are there bits that you're changing on or amending on or bits that you wish you could change on <laughs> um, since this hard co- hardback I, came no, out? No, I, I think I'm going to leave it as it is. I mean, there's, I, I think, you know, people who got uh, irritated by the word invention, and whatnot, they're, still, <laughs> they're still going to be invented. But I mean, I, if, if I'd called it the construction of China, people would have thought it was about civil engineering. Or I think that's a very fair point. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for well, It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.